Iza is the debut album of Koya James, the solo project of acclaimed Darwin-based producer James Mango Higg. James's credentials are deep in our hip-hop and larger music scene here, going well beyond producing, formerly one half of Sieta alongside Katie Baker. He now produces for her as well as other artists like Stevie Jean, Tasman Keith, Briggs, and so many others. Uh, with Koya James and Iza, Koya meaning older brother and Iza, one in Tagalog, James is telling his story and celebrating his Filipino identity. In this interview, we talk about how COVID changed the course of the album to include a lot more of the local scene, uh, how working on Iza was different to working with artists on their own projects, and his ethos in creating the Pinoy Street Party at the recent Homegrown Darwin Festival, among many, many other things. Uh, this interview was recorded in Darwin, and I want to acknowledge that this is stolen Larrakia land, and I want to pay my respects to the Larrakia people, their elders and their ancestors, as well as all the First Nations people this interview reaches across the continent. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. All right, let's get into this interview with Koya James. It has a huge variety of sounds. What were some of the biggest inspirations when working on it? I reckon for me, I sort of delved into my love of the way the Neptunes and Timberland and some of those producers that sort of came to fruition in the 90s really used to take sort of tribal sounds, rhythms and samples that were a little bit unique and bring them into kind of hip hop and I guess pop music in a way. And so for me, I have always loved those kind of Asian sounding instruments, um, both ones from the Philippines and also from other parts of Asia. So um, at heart, I'm a hip hop producer, but I wanted to sort of push myself um, with the kind of songwriting and the use of those samples and rhythms through this record. Awesome. Um, why did 2020 feel like a good year and like point in time to release your solo debut? Uh, it didn't really feel like a good time, actually. Like in um, March, I had a very different album in the making. It was a, um, a lot more of, I would say like the rhythms were a bit more dance and I had a desire to travel to the Philippines and Taiwan and collaborate with a bunch of artists um, from those regions. But obviously, as soon as um, lockdown happened, I actually changed the whole course of the record and it became apparent that I would have to use a lot more local artists, which ended up being like one of those things where you just, when you accept it, it becomes like a blessing and it's the right thing. And um, I think for me over the years, I'm always releasing heaps of music, working on other people's albums that to kind of hold off on releasing it this year might've felt a bit weird for me. And um, I know it's a strange time to release music, but you know, I needed to make this record and I needed to put it out and I think for me, um, how it's received and stuff is not just about like that the, the day I drop it, but it's about like the campaign that you build afterwards as well. And, and even as you go into the next project, you still find ways to shine a light on this one. So I think is the way the music industry is, it's this never really like the ultimate time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of one of those things where everyone is yelling and screaming for attention. So you have to put things out with your, with your gut feeling like it's right, I think more than anything else. A lot of publicists would probably advise against not releasing anything, but then I think now that means there's a lot of artists, particularly even in Australia, who are backed up right now, dying to release albums and touring, and it's gonna be a weird sort of saturated market for a moment next year, I reckon. And yeah, um, yeah I think, um, so it just, it was sort of like dictated more by the things that happen in the world rather than me having an exact desire to do what I did. Yeah. Were there any other kind of challenges of like putting out an album in like a press release kind of during a pandemic? <laughs> yeah, um, there are, there's so many different challenges because there was a period when I dropped my first single, Sabal, and the film clip and the publicist just said, no one wants to read anything that doesn't have the word COVID in it. Like, and he was like talking on a both mainstream and kind of like even indie kind of newsfeed level. And um, that 
that sort of stuff can feel discouraging. But for me, I just went, you know, I've got to sort of still build that community network. And, you know, like obviously having like leading towards a live show at the Darwin Festival this year, that was one of those things where I'm like, that's kind of like a point for me of building towards that rather than thinking too much about how the music has to get out there and all these people have to hear it, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that sort of just helps you feel balanced. Um, yeah, you mentioned before collaboration and collaboration with local artists was like a huge part of this album or ended up being a huge part of the album. Um, what was kind of different to working with all these artists for Isa when you had already produced like for a lot of them and worked with them on other projects? Like what was different as Isa being like your solo project? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's it sounds like sounds really funny, but you get to be the boss. So when it's like you featuring someone or you you know, I often work with all of the artists like that are on my record in a sense on their records and they, they're the boss. Like I want to make them happy. And I, as a producer, I'm trying to bring out the best of what their um, songs and their sort of vision is. And, you know, obviously adding my own flavors and stuff as well. And, um, but with a project um, with Koya James and this album, it was more like that kind of gorillas approach where, um, you know, the gorillas essentially have so many collaborations, but Damon Albin is like the boss of it. He's the one who sort of makes the last call and that executive producer thing comes in. And I think for me, that was one of the different things. It's like you, you approach the artist with more of like a, a vision rather than just like, hey, let's make something, you know, which is kind of cool. And I think, um, you know, I've, that's, I guess it's a testament to the relationships that I've built with those artists over the years that it was quite natural to do that. And for them to go, yep, you're the boss of this one. Yeah, yeah, um, I feel like all the collaborations you have on it just fit like so well with you. who you've been working with. And um, and yeah, the opener for the album is Live By New Rules. Can you tell us a bit like about that song title and line and like how it ties into the project? What are the new rules? Um, <laughs> well, there's, there seems to be new ones every day. <laughs> I think for me, I wanted to open the record with not like a normal sort of song, like more around like how I feel around the um, my love of like, you know, DJ Shadows introducing and DJ Crush's stuff and kind of even like the avalanches where it's like more around samples and this kind of journey of music rather than like a, a verse, a chorus and a song. So I um, the first thing I did is sort of um, get Serena to jam vocal ideas on it and then and then I said to her, let's just make one chant up. And she had the idea of like this live by new rules vibe. And it sort of felt like it applied to the way the world felt. And, um, you know, yeah, like I just made sure that that was going to be the only lyric for that song. So it was, it's a statement for sure, but it's also like um, a musical, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a lyrical statement, but it's also a musical statement to me that it sort of is like a five minute journey and goes into this kind of synth psychedelic section in the middle and then comes back out to like a kind of Asian hip hop sounding song. And, you know, that was important for me to not have, um, to have that type of vibe on the record. And it's sort of hints at more the things I always make anyway in my bedroom by myself that, you know, often they turn into, you know, songs with the artists I work with, or they just sort of turn into like, random little instrumental things to get used for other projects. But I really want to sort of bring that love of that instrumental hip hop out sometimes, even though it's, it's you know, it's it's commercially not the smartest thing to do. I just really like it. Nice. Um, can you tell us a bit about like, was it you and Serena kind of writing most of the stuff for the album or? Yeah, so, you know, I met Serena Peck when she was 16 years old and she's a amazing folk singer songwriter, but the minute we sort of started hanging out in the studio, less around her songs and just her being there when I'm making tunes. She started writing things and I went, man, this this artist can just write to anything. And so with this album, it really, we've got so much more than what's on this album, things we've written together, but it's, it was interesting to have her just kind of come in and be like, 
I don't really care about promoting myself as an artist through this. I just want to write heaps of things. And for me, a lot of people, like, I think um, over the years struggle with that thing. It's like this ego versus, like, contributing to things and no one finding out. Like, there's so many tracks I've worked on that I don't... My name is not, like, on Spotify or my name is not on every sort of time the artist posts that they go produced by this guy. Um, but letting go of that, like, earlier in my career was really good and healthy. And I think Serena, like, she just... She loves that. She loves being part of things and contributing to um, songwriting, even if she's not always the featured artist. And so for me, that takes out this really, this ego in the studio where you're just, you're almost just writing for fun, like you're in a high school band together and not even overthinking any of it. And um, some great stuff comes out, great melodies. I love the way she thinks about melodies and phrasing and lyrics and themes. And we always bounce stuff off each other in the lab too. So it just feels really easy. And, you know, I call her my sister, even though we're not like blood related, um, but it does definitely feel like she's like a musical sister for sure. You mentioned before you had the Pinoy Street Party, the Dawn Festival, yeah. um, where Izzy was debuted. And how do you feel that when, especially like as a celebration for and of the Filipino community here in Arakia land? For me, it was just incredibly successful because my overall vision was not only about like having Filipino voices and artists represented on stage, but it was about actually changing the way the crowds look. I think there's a massive problem in the Australian art scene that we often put on these things that have cultural weight and are incredible, but the tickets are still like, could be 45 to $60 and the room is full of middle-class to upper-class white people watching this beautiful cultural thing. And to me, the true way to throw a party, um, especially when it has like a cultural element or a cultural edge to it, is to make sure that the crowd is also you know, feeling represented of, you know, like, and so for me, there was a moment where I read about in 1980 or 1981, the Darwin Festival, I think it was called the Bougainvillea Festival back then, on the Friday night at 8pm of the, you know, festival season, they would have this Filipino night. And the Filipino community would sort of, you know, put on events and mainstream Darwin would come and hang out and learn about the food and the dancing and the culture. So the success for me was in also seeing that pretty much 50% or over 50% of the crowd were Filipino people who had never been to a Darwin Festival event. And that's the main goal I had, was to A, enjoy the process, and B, to make sure the crowd are also Filipino people. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> um, do you imagine that Kua James, like the Kua James live show, continuing to be that scale as things like reopen across the country and we can hopefully like go on tour again? That's exactly what I was discussing with my manager this morning. I think that for me, like right now, if, if the borders were open, I wouldn't be taking like a 10 piece show on the road. I'd be probably going and doing DJ sets and doing promotion through that, you know, and trying to do some like, you know, uh, smaller kind of venues and potentially bringing someone through some visual stuff. But the long-term plan is, I guess, to always, you know, collaborate on a level where I could go to a place and work with the local Filipino community there and then sort of bring some people from Darwin and that sort of feeling of collaboration and that street party edge continues. So I think having both in the bag is good, like knowing that some festivals, um, you know, if, if promoters love the tunes, they might want to book me and I'll be like, look, with the fee or whatever, I'm, I'm going to bring just two other people or one other person. But then for like bigger scale festivals, I think it's always great to have that option to sort of basically roughly know how to sort of put that sort of show together. And um, I love I love being able to be flexible in that way because it also means that, you know, I can always sort of even approach the community and get feedback from them about what they want to do and how they want to be represented. So it, it just gives that 
amazing flexibility and I have no desire at all to kind of create this thing where Koya James is like this artist that has, you know, like I don't care so much about being always like the forefront of it all. I, I enjoy being sort of behind the scenes a little bit and putting people forward, but also like still representing with that name, you know, the, the Koya James name and, and that people would go and go, you know what, that dude loves music. Even if he's just DJ, I reckon it's going to be dope. Like he's going to play some cool stuff. He's going to play some of his own stuff. He's going to play remixes of his own stuff. And who knows, man, like someone might be there, like Stevie Jean might be there or MCL might be there or, you know, whoever, like people that I've worked with can sort of um, be part of those live shows. On this radio show, we talk a lot about like the changing landscape of hip hop, I guess yeah. is a good way to put it in Australia. And like, how the scene was obviously like pretty dominantly white maybe like 10 years ago and how that's like kind of starting to change now we're getting like a lot of more diverse sounds and like identity and yeah. in just like sonically mm -hmm. so yeah i wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that change as someone who's been producing hip-hop for a while now yeah i remember being back at a jinderbine gig i think it was my old group sieta and um we were playing with the fundamentals and illy and mantra and oh that's so many acts anyway there was like 18 white dudes backstage and then me and katie baker it was like hilarious and i sort of thought to myself i reckon this would have been maybe 10 nine years ago and um i remember thinking to myself this is not good but even before that i had a group called culture connect from darwin which was you know had we had guys from representing the philippines papua new guinea zimbabwe ghana haiti um Birds was in that crew from the um, Bad Apples label and it was just this big crew of um, I guess people from the North, you know rappers and artists and musicians from Darwin and we our first tour we kind of freaked out at how white the scene was because you know it was this was pre-Facebook and pre-everything um, and I just think to myself now it has changed so much but it still feels like there are certain people holding the power and I get it like I get why someone you know, is bigger than someone else. I understand that a lot of people, especially, you know, the population still love like the kind of girl and guy next door from Neighbours vibe. Like that's sort of, I get that whole scene, which has been, you know, whitewashed in the Australian media landscape for a long time. And for, for sure, there's a lot of change happening. I think it's getting up to the point where we need the people, like the promoters and stuff. And the artists are definitely here and they've been making noise, but I think they've always been making noise and trying to get heard. And now it just feels like it's a little bit more on trend for promoters to think about that. Yeah. And... Obviously, that's a good thing, but that that change has to come from within and it has to be not tokenistic. It has to be a real meaningful um, decision for them to make. And I think the same goes for the labels and the same goes for the way the whole scene works. And that's going to bring a change amongst the way that fans and the, the next generation consume music and basically demand for this thing to happen, demand. They don't want to just see, you know, white guys rapping on stage. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think like you said as well earlier, it's like a matter as well as figuring out how to get more diverse crowds as well as people on stage, which yeah. could be like tier ticketing systems or whatever. But Yeah, and just getting people like making an environment where people feel comfortable, like where yeah. people of color um, feel comfortable to go and party there. And that it sort of, it's not even inclusive in this really obvious way. It's just about the way people balance the energy in a room a lot of the time, you know, like it can feel... Everyone knows that like the old Aussie hip hop gigs were like a like you couldn't even tell the difference between the rappers on stage and the crowd. It just had they almost had this like uniform of what yeah. it looked like to be like a white Aussie hip hop fan. And I think that even a lot of the artists back then didn't want that. They wanted the change. You know, I love hearing stories about the way some of those artists back in the day were trying to push for things to be different. Even like, you know, huge artists like the Hoods, you know, they they wanted to like put on 
you know, different artists and know about like indigenous politics and rights and understand that and the way they sort of, you know, brought in bridge to that golden era camp early on and all that sort of thing. We're seeing some of the results of some of those people back then making those decisions to be like that. The thing is that was, you know, that wasn't everyone thinking like them, but I think now a lot more people are conscious to think of what they're putting into the world and what they create with their music and their, you know, at their gigs, what sort of energy they create and how they make the people feel who come to the gigs. Yeah, and that, that kind of mentality has obviously formed a lot of Kuya James and like the street party in this album. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, just the way that I put the, the type of people I collaborate with. But, you know, I, um, I sort of feel that even for me, like I have to be careful that I'm thinking about it in a non-tokenistic label yeah. because we're so bombarded with, with that sort of um, rhetoric. And for me, it's still going to be, it all comes down to relationships. It all comes down to like having relationships and representing my world because often that's the thing is like you look at the scene and you're like I'm not represented in this scene or especially if you come from Darwin like you know growing up here like our classrooms were so multicultural it was amazing and so when you go to Melbourne you're like it almost feels like you know the segregation amongst even just the suburbs yeah. and while in Darwin you know you can't you can't you can't it's just not like that it's just so everyone's smashed together in this small hot town <laughs> and so you know we are very privileged to to see a lot of like different faces growing up here and i think that's why i find um talking about race in darwin actually easier than anywhere else because it feels like people are just up for the conversation because we're always dealing with it yeah do you have any advice for like younger filipino artists coming up and especially like in hip-hop um my biggest advice is if you're a Filipino artist in Australia is like learn about like the First Nations people of this land, learn about like the history and learn about the true history. Think about how that applies to you as a hip hop artist and think about how it also applies to you as a Filipino because our history in the Philippines is full of all sorts of crazy stuff as well. And if we're lucky enough to have escaped what is, you know, known as one of the most corrupt governments in the world and the Philippines government has a long history of terrible atrocities and you know martial law in the 80s and all sorts of things if you're lucky enough to have had to be able to have a chance to come to this country and build something and i think it's really important you learn about the history of this country and you you sort of understand your place in contributing to more people knowing about that and then therefore that will also help you look internally around back in the philippines and it's a hard pill to swallow like i have struggled to confront it my whole career and even more so now you know i with what's going on in the philippines now i still have to really kind of think about it in a not in just a like this is right and this is wrong like it's it's a much deeper thing but knowledge and understanding how indigenous people have basically been yelling about how things need to be for a long time i think and using any platform you have to help elevate that it's a really good way to, I think, um, empower the next generation of Filipino artists within Australia. Yeah, awesome. All right, to finish off, um, this is a question we ask everyone on the show. If you could collaborate with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? <laughs> well, I would love to, I mean, this is so obvious, but I would love a whole day with just Prince playing every instrument and me just sampling it. Yeah. That would be pretty amazing. Um, as far as MCs go, um, rappers. Oh, look, I'll, I'll go straight out like and say that the guy I would most love to collaborate in my career at some point is Russell Elevato, who is a Filipino mix engineer from New York who's responsible for Alicia Keys Falling and all of the D'Angelo albums and is a analog... Um, they call him the Dragon, an analog mix engineer who works out of Electric Ladyland. And to me, 
what he's brought to music and the way he's lived his life and his philosophy around music is really inspiring as much as the records he's made. So, yeah. Yeah, awesome. You're probably the first person on the show to talk about collaborating with a mix engineer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did say Prince first. Yeah, true. All right, um, do you want to just like plug where to find Koya James online and keep up? This is Koya James from Darwin, Northern Territory, Australia. You're listening to Sin Radio. You can find me on... Instagram, Koya James Music, or the Facebook, or the YouTubes. Uh, yeah, just K U Y A James Music. Word. Yeah.